0: Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Co., the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. This is Taylor Mammon, Chief Executive Officer of RCL Co. Fund Advisors, or RFA, a business affiliate of RCL Co. Real Estate Consulting. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCL Co. has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development. RFA aims to improve the institutional real estate investment model by providing customized and aligned consulting and advisory solutions to investors. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today, I am talking to Warren Fields, President and CEO of Pyramid Hotel Group. Pyramid Hotel Group, established in 1999, is a privately owned full service hotel and resort company based in Boston. It manages over 90 hotels with more than 12,000 team members across the United States, the Caribbean, Ireland, and the UK. In 2016, Pyramid partnered with the Wine Gardener and Hammonds Hotel Group to add another 1,700 team members and 17 hotels. With more than $1 billion in revenue, Hotel Group Magazine ranked Pyramid Hotel Group as the third largest management company in 2016. Pyramid is a strategic partner of one of our institutional investor clients managing a separate account that focuses on value-add hotel acquisition. That's how I got to know Warren through that process of structuring and negotiating that venture. And I've grown to appreciate over the years, in particular, his leadership skills as the CEO of a very large and diverse company. And it's worth mentioning his coolness under pressure during the difficult past year. Warren, thanks so much for joining us as one of the best minds in real estate.
1: Thanks, Taylor. Happy to be here and always good to spend some time with you guys
0: because you guys do a lot of different things than we do in the hotel business. Great. Well, I was interested in talking to you on this podcast because of your deep experience in the hotel business, as I feel the rest of us in real estate have a lot to learn from that, uh, the hotel business in particular. So Perhaps to get us started, Warren, would you mind sharing your work history? Just ha- how did you get here? Sure, happy to. So,
1: you know, I've been in the business almost 30 years. I tell students that, you know, your first job is never your last job. And my first job, I ran the Fryer later at a Wendy's here in downtown Boston. Very pedestrian first job, and I always remember those days because, quite frankly, it was fun. Then I went on to the hotel school at Cornell, graduated in 85. I took a job with the largest real estate developer here in the city of Boston. It's called the Beacon Companies, and there are developers, contractors. They owned a large residential portfolio office, and I really learned a lot, and when I started, they had created a hotel company in 1983, and that's where I went to work. I went in the hotel company, and once I got into the organization, I figured I could find a way to get a real estate position. However, my first job, I was a restaurant manager at a Holiday Inn in Windsor Locks, Connecticut. Three years later, I became a feasibility analyst. I did that actually instead of going to real estate school at MIT, partly because I wasn't a great student. Secondly, because you know I figured I was actually going to be doing the work that I would have learned while I was in school. So that was really the start of my real estate career. At one time, I owned with two partners, 50 apartments in and around Boston. So I got a flavor of sort of what residential real estate was about. But ultimately, as an analyst with the Beacon companies, I grew into be a deal person, partially responsible for the company's growth. As the company grew, I was fortunate to help create a brand. We bought a company called Doubletree in 1991. At one time, I had 30 plus hotels report to me, which provided me a needed operational focus. I continued to help the company grow. I learned how to raise money, debt, and equity on Wall Street and via PE firms. And quite frankly, I was really fortunate that while I had a good productive work history, I also had really good mentors and I had people who believed in me. I was very fortunate for that. That company was ultimately sold to Hilton in 1998. And in 1999, we formed Pyramid Hotel Group. And after 20 years of being the co-founder and chief investment officer, I became the president and CEO a couple of years ago.
0: That is a great overview, Warren, and a truly remarkable seat you've had over the past 30 years to witness the changes and evolution of the hotel industry, which I want to come back to in a moment. But just curious, first of all, what got you into real estate to begin with?
1: When I was younger, actually, the guy who got me the job at the Wendy's He was effectively a real estate guy and he had these operating businesses like, you know, the Wendy's and a couple other things. What I really liked about these individuals that I saw when I grew up was they were all smart. None of them were rocket scientists. They were energetic, wealthy, but, you know, not to excess. And they had wonderful family lives. They also seemed to have control over their time, which really appealed to me. Common theme was that they were all in real estate. Developers, builders, owners of assets. But I figured if you were in real estate, you could do all these things, and they seemed really interesting. And I fancied myself as sort of being like those individuals because I'm not a rocket scientist by any stretch of the means.
0: I'm not sure everybody agrees with that, Warren, but knowing a lot of people like that myself in real estate, it certainly resonates. Though I'd love to find some people that have a lot of control over their time at this point. That might be one of those things that's changed over time. Let's maybe go to that. So, over the span of your career in the hospitality business, what are things that you would identify as the major changes that have affected the business and Pyramid in particular?
1: At least from a hotel perspective, and and I would view this. I'd say in all the real estate food groups, is that I believe the capital has become much more sophisticated about hotel operations. And I'm sure it's about everything from self-storage to industrial to resi. Capital is, they're smarter, they're better, they're faster, they understand it more. And I actually believe that's a good thing, that quality of the capital understands the business because in our world, quality and results sell. That would be the first thing. The second thing that has changed dramatically in our business is who controls the customers. I mean, the customers who go to the hotels. Used to be the brands, they kind of gave that up. Now you have Airbnb, you got VRBO, you got new players like Saunders, another one that just came out called Casa, that's very similar to Saunders, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Alibaba, TripAdvisor, they're all trying to get control of where the customer goes. You know, they're disruptors. So we, as an operator, we have to develop better tools to analyze markets, allowing us to make better decisions at the property level. That's how we win. Another thing that we did is probably five years ago, we went global and what I mean by that, we went over to Western Europe. We started in Ireland and we really went over there because, you know, there was a race to the bottom here. From a fee for service here in the U.S. because there's so many competitors. Capital was basically commoditizing our business. And we actually like to think we do a good job. We like to think we spend a lot of time. We, you don't necessarily want to work for free. No one does. So we went over to Western Europe. There's very few of our competitors are there. We actually bought a platform after having been there for a bunch of years. We bought this platform in February of 20, timing wasn't great, but I will say that their pipeline is much more robust than the one is here. And then lastly, over the past, probably 24 months, my two partners retired and stepped back. One was the chief operating officer, the other one was, you know, the co-founder with me, who was a CEO. And what that allowed us to do was, you know, we were asking ourselves the questions, the senior exec team, we don't know what we don't know. So this is going to allow us to change and grow and look beyond what we were currently doing to try and do better and become you know, really a center of excellence for hospitality management.
0: Fascinating. And in particular, your description of the number of disruptors really highlights the operational side of the hospitality business. That it's just far more fast moving and dynamic than many other segments within real estate. Again, all just related to the fact that your lease terms are overnight versus you know annual lease terms for multifamily, maybe several years for office and so on. As an operationally intensive business within real estate, what do you think operators and investors of other property types could learn about how to run a business from the hotel folks?
1: You know, the fact that our leases are so dynamic, in our view, if you have an empty room, you never get that room back, right? So you're trying to fill those as often as you can, number one. Number two, we really do worry about nickels on the PL. The most important part of our PL is sort of in the middle of the PL where Below the revenue and before you get to your fixed charges, that area, your operational expenses, that's where you make all your money. And if you're not truly focused on that and challenging yourself all the time, one of the things that I talk to, you know, on a monthly basis, we have a, we call it a core six meeting. And I talk to all of the new senior executives at the operating level. And I stress to them that. The smallest, most mundane decisions that they make at the hotel can have huge consequences if they're making the same one all the time on a daily basis, and it's not necessarily the most efficient, or heaven forbid, it's the wrong one, right? Those are the things that operationally can really be a detriment because they're happening every day. And they're happening really frequently and so you really have to be mindful of are those decisions the right ones challenge yourself we have to give them the tools we also have to give them you know the autonomy that you know that their market is different than another market and they have to be able to make some of those decisions on their own one of the things that we try to do is push all the decision making down to its lowest common denominator and then number two at some level allow people to fail as long as it's not catastrophic because When people do fail, they actually learn some things long as they're not doing it over and over and over again.
0: That's really fantastic. And I think increasingly relevant in the low cap rate environment in which real estate investors are operating and in which they'll likely be operating for a while. Because if you're buying something, this isn't the case in hotels at this point, thank goodness. But if you're buying something at a cap rate that begins with a three, time to focus on the nickels and time to focus on occupancy. Those two things. Those are really what's going to make a difference long term. So again, I as I said before, I really think that real estate investors need to think of themselves more and more as operators of, of individual businesses and, uh, and train their teams accordingly, which is clearly a major part of what you do on a day-to-day basis, Warren.
1: In our view, all the real work starts once we buy the asset and we own it. That's when all the real work starts. We can buy hotels with the best of them. Once you get in
0: there and you're sort of, oh, oh my God, I got to run the thing now. That's when all the fun starts. Right. And even though you know how to manage a restaurant, even commandeer a fryer, if necessary, you're not going to be doing all that work More, yeah, it. It's a large lot. team. So you have to make sure they, they know what they're doing, too. You hit the right word. Team. Team
1: is the right word. Because there's, there's absolutely no way that I could do all the things. And there's clearly people in our organization who do a lot of things better than I do. And that's why we work. I should have mentioned earlier, but you gave us some props on 2016. We were the third largest in the United States in terms of revenue. Last year, we were second from J.D. Power and Associates on service delivery in the hotel industry on a national basis. And we were knocked out of first by one point. So that's a team effort. That's a total team effort from the people on the ground.
0: Congratulations. And in a really tough year, obviously. So shifting gears a little. So I I have to think that you have some stories to tell from your years experience running and owning hotels. Do you you have a favorite story or anecdote? I just have to ask.
1: I think the goofiest story is we used to not every year, but every two years we would run an annual meeting of all the general managers, directors of sales, engineers, human resources, and I think food and beverage. And my two partners and I, you know, we were always thought of as, you know, I thought of us as three stooges, but everybody else thought of us as sort of, you know, the three amigos. And one year we had this really good idea. We were going to dress up in three amigos, this sort of outfit, and we're going to ride into the ballroom for the opening session on horseback. Nothing could go wrong. Oh, nothing could go wrong. Not only not only that, in that first session, we actually had our insurance people in there because they were going to give a presentation later that morning. So not for nothing, but my horse gets three quarters of the way in, starts bucking, literally bucking. I'm, I'm like riding a bucking Bronco and people are scrambling because the thing is kicking. And one of my partners jumps off his horse and runs the other way. And I, oh, it was a complete... Mess. Fortunately, no one got hurt. Horses got out of there, and we went on through the day. And it, actually, the best part about it was because no one got hurt. It was really invigorating for the entire for the entire group. It was like set a stage for the entire meeting. But it was really really goofy. Really really goofy. live live animals in a ballroom is never a good thing.
0: Right. Well, especially when uh, they're the size of a horse, I suppose. But yeah, I'm sure it became a touchstone <laughs> and repeated story for a long time to come. So maybe with that as a transition, I'd like to talk a little about leadership specifically. So so first priority. So, Warren, how do you prioritize both your time and which projects to pursue?
1: From a time perspective, um, I prioritize Things, issues for me that move the organization forward and those which remove barriers for my teammates so that they can succeed. There's an issue. I'll deal with it because I want them to completely focus on how do we make sure that our hotels are operating as efficiently and as profitably as they can from a new business perspective. Are the teams out there looking at assets? Is the underwriting where it needs to be? If I have to interview analysts because we're short on one or two, I will do that while the rest of the team is doing something else. I spend my time on those issues and talking a little bit about strategy with some of the senior people. You know, we abhor duplication at every level of the company. You know, we're looking at projects that we want to pursue. The number one question on a hotel for us is, can we go into that hotel and make a difference operationally? Because if we can't, we spend way too much time on it. We don't have a happy partner. Now, needless to say, there aren't that many of those assets, but sometimes you just find an asset that you think is going to do X, Y, and Z, and it's just in the wrong market or for some reason, it's just not working. Those are giant, giant time sucks, and you have to figure out a way to extricate yourself from those. And sometimes it means selling it early if you have to. Sometimes it just don't work. There are people on the other side who are not trustworthy and forthright. We don't want to spend time with that. Trying to be the operator partner of choice for institutional capital in our space. That also means, though, that we should have a say on who those partners are. You know, a lot of time goes into who do we want to work with, where do we want to work, and what type of hotel is it? And if we can focus on those types of things, I think we'll be a partner of choice. And we also focus, I spent a lot of time on creating a culture of inclusivity and advancement for all, because I was one of those who had a lot of chances and opportunities, and you have to take advantage of those when you get them, and we have to create those opportunities for others.
0: Great. I'd like to pick up on that really quickly because as a hotel operator, you employ people from a far wider spectrum of socioeconomic groups and backgrounds than most other real estate companies in particular. So how do you effectively lead such a diverse group and and ensure that those pathways to success are there throughout the company? You know, we've always done a
1: decent job at making sure that, uh, you know, we sort of promote from within. Uh, we have 50% of our employees are people of color. Oh, I would say, I think the number is like 40% of our executives are women. So we've done a pretty good job. When I say pretty good job, where we faltered is we have faltered in taking managers, particularly of color, and moving them up into the senior executives at a hotel. And when we really went back and looked at that, what we found was sometimes the job requirements that we had for becoming a controller or, you know, a general manager or a director of food and beverage was that you had to have a four-year degree. There are individuals who have been in the business long enough where that standard doesn't matter anymore. I'm a CEO without an advanced degree. Does it really matter? Maybe, maybe not. But we shouldn't have those types of barriers. And that's what we've tried to break down. And ultimately, Taylor, my view on work is if we create an environment where everyone is intellectually stimulated, we should become the employer of choice. I'm sure for you and, and your team, You guys wake up and you want to do all kinds of really neat things and be involved in different things. And if you had to do the same thing every day, I don't know about you, but I would probably blow my brains out. People on my team, I want them to be as intellectually stimulated as we can possibly allow for it given the jobs that they have. But how do we continue to teach them and how to grow them? And that's how we've, at least how I've been able to sort of manage a very diverse group of people. You still have to treat them all the same way. Just because, you know, my chief operating officer has the title doesn't mean I can't treat the waiter or waitress or the bartender in one of our places any differently. You still have to treat them with dignity and respect and try and get to know them and understand who they are and what makes them tick. What are the issues that are important to them? Childcare right now is a huge issue for a lot of people. And we have this program with AH and LA where people can go get a four-year degree at virtually no cost to them if they want to. So there's all kinds of programs that we run. We have to do a better job of getting that word out. But I think one of the the best parts about my job is the diversity of the people that we have within our organization. And,
0: And we foster it. You have to foster it. It absolutely sounds as though it's something that certainly goes beyond lip service at this point, but it's something you've truly embraced as a culture. And as you're aware, Warren, we're seeing, particularly on the institutional side of the real estate industry, Um, meaningful and, I hope, an enduring focus on supporting and increasing diversity within our companies and especially within the ranks of leadership. And a lot of what you've said, I think, already goes to this, but has to be acknowledged that as an African-American leader, what do you think about this push within the institutional real estate industry? And beyond saying the right things, what do you think companies can realistically do to embrace and enhance diversity within the ranks?
1: Well, at our senior level, we bonus people against it. Flat out, hit their pocketbook if they're not doing it. Why score around? Just make it happen. At some level, you get tired of hearing these people aren't out there. So fine, train them yourself. Coach them up yourself. So that's number one. Number two, what wasn't happening was people just were not aware of what they were not doing. Yeah, that seems a little simplistic, but I'm not so sure in today's environment, that people were on purpose not trying to move a certain group of people into another level. Maybe I'm naive, but I also think that there's clearly a bias where people like the higher people that they feel comfortable with. You need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Fantastic, right? Just think about it. You know, we should all be uncomfortable at some point during the day and you just Flat out need to get comfortable being that way. And it doesn't mean that you have to be scared or nervous or what. You just put yourself in a position where it's not always easy for yourself. And sometimes hiring people because you don't know them, you feel uncomfortable with that because you don't know what you're getting. But that's what you have to do in order to make change. When I was younger and I interviewed people, I used to say to myself, would I have a beer with them? And then I realized over time, that's probably not one of the right standards. It wasn't the only thing that I use. But when you're working with people a lot, you kind of want to say, well, yeah, I would go out and have a beer with I mean, They were qualified everywhere else. But that really limits the pool of people, right? And so, you know, I had to rethink that strategy. And again, I wasn't doing it because I didn't want to. Not hire somebody. I was thinking selfishly of what was easier for me. We need to change some of those biases. What's happened in the past year, I would be shocked if there wasn't a company today out there in any business that wasn't focused on this area right now. It would just not be good for business, number one. And number two, it really isn't that hard. You just have to spend some time on it.
0: First of all, I think you're right that this is an area that uh, the vast majority of companies are focused on right now but I think you said a couple of things that are very practical and helpful and that a lot of companies potentially aren't doing at this point. One, having it impact people's pocketbooks, having it actually tie into the bonuses. That's a meaningful intervention that you're making within your organization. And usually those kinds of incentives seem to work at some point in time. And then second, which you said in a couple of different ways, which I think is fascinating, is starting to change traditional expectations about what type of background or even qualifications, like those that appear on a resume, are needed for a particular jobs. job. As that's going to open up your options so much more than just kind of looking for the same type of person to be a controller, as you noted, as what you've always done.
1: Our jobs aren't technical like someone who's trying to save the world from cancer. So, you have to have a certain education, background, training, blah, blah, blah. I don't believe in 90% of the positions that are out there in the world that those technical requirements are that high everywhere. So, as an example, you know, at a real estate firm, you don't have to be a mathematician who went to MIT, I'm not picking on MIT, in order to figure out how to run discounted cash flow analysis. You just don't. You know, you need to be trained on it and you can figure that out and then you can learn the rest of the terminology. You may not get it right the first time, but they may have some other intrinsic characteristic in their personality, which would make them either a good analyst or they'd make themselves really good at finding a piece of ground for a resi deal. Part of it is getting access to those positions. And that's where I think maybe the real estate industry has, has faltered a little bit where we just haven't provided the access. And also, I would say that there are probably people out there like me who haven't gone into that industry because they didn't think they would get the access. So it's really twofold. You have to sort of get the word out that there is accessibility to do
0: this and then they have to be trained. No, it it requires rolling up the sleeves, being really committed to to doing this. Shifting gears a little, understatement of the year, but hotels got hammered during the pandemic. How did Pyramid survive? What are you doing to thrive at this point, Warren? Well,
1: I think the number one watchword of the past year, I think, in every business was liquidity. You know, we did all the things that everybody else did. We took pay cuts, we furloughed, terminated. We did all kinds of things that I hope to never have to do again in my career. But the focus was, how do I get the company to the other side? We did all of those things. And then some, you know, we drew down our credit line. We had to do that before we violate our covenants or else we wouldn't be able to take the cash down. There were just some technical as well as practical things that had to be done in order to reduce the cash flow. Unfortunately, you just had to do it. So once we got through that, the other thing we did was, you know, we reorganized the company operationally. You know, we created these regions, East, Central, West. We developed some new tools, some operating tools, and we're continuing to do that. And those operating tools were Really designed to create a better work life balance for people out in the field and and within the company. You know, we had a problem with that a few years ago where the work versus the life balance was way out of balance. You know, as an example, you know, we've been able to take on a weekly basis, I think the number is like 15 man hours per hotel from a reporting perspective. And then we did all this last year with some consultants and some internal people. And my ultimate goal is to create an environment where our people are spending less time on reporting, more time reacting. And maybe we even get to the point where we have some AI and some of the systems that we have. So when we have certain events or certain predictors, you know, the AI will help us make decisions. And ultimately, I want my people at the hotel to be more fresher than my competitors so they're thinking about the business in a better light than the team at the hotel next door. I think we win. And ultimately, ultimately, if I get these tools the way I think they can, I think they'll be worth more than the company will be eventually. And then we can help the rest of the industry, which will be better for everyone. It's a lofty goal, but that's how I think about it.
0: I love it. So certainly not letting a good downturn go to waste in, in terms of looking for those opportunities, having enough liquidity to survive, and then really starting to focus on both offense and defense. The offense was, all right, what are we going to do next to get ready? Because eventually we're going to get
1: back to where we were from a demand perspective. And then I think I might've told you our pipeline in Europe from a growth perspective is almost twice what it is here. That Division of our company, they could be at our size soon here in the U.S. as as well in Western Europe. We have a really great team over there, run by a guy by the name of Frank Crosston and his partner Chris Evans. You know, their their culture is very similar to ours. They're very well respected over there. They have great relationships. We've introduced them to some of the capital that we knew here who's gone over across the pond, and so you no, know, it's working out well. I'm actually really excited about when we get back to a sort of normal demand picture, you know, here in the U.S., because a lot of the tools that we implemented in systems and processes, I think we'll be able to show better flow through at our properties than our competition. If that is really the case, then, you know, we win again.
0: And, you know, maybe one last question since we're running up against time, um, which is what advice or what resources would you recommend for somebody looking to gain insight um, into leadership? Maybe somebody who's stepping into leadership for the first time.
1: The one thing I would say is never stop learning and never assume you have all the answers. I like to play devil's advocate with my team all the time. You know, let's challenge the assumptions. Let's challenge everything. You know, I want to be sure that we're thinking about the things properly. You know, I tend to make decisions with the best and accurate information at the time. However, two or three days later, you may have better or different additional information that presents itself, and you have to reevaluate what that means. And then that may mean a Miakopa. It just might, and pivot instead of let's do that. Particularly when you know it's wrong, just change that's the great thing about business. You can change. I guess, you know, if I had to do it all over again, you know, in the real estate industry at a younger age, I probably would have learned more about the different real estate food groups because I also think there's somewhat intertwined And in, while I have a general idea and I feel pretty, pretty comfortable about understanding, you know, how they all work together. I should have spent a little bit more time when I was younger trying to figure that out. Now, I'm, you know, I'm a dinosaur now. It's, it's <laughs> Never too that's, late. That's, that's, Never that's, too late. Yeah, no, you're right on that. You're right on <laughs> that. You're right on yeah. that. Never too late. And I guess the last thing I would say is that being a leader is, is focus on the things that you can control. Once you start worrying about responses from others or if something happens that, that was beyond your control, I only focus on the things that I can control. To me, nothing else matters because we can't control what happens or what others do. We just can't. Pretty simple.
0: Well, simple, but profound. And Warren, I can't thank you enough for your generous insights and perspectives. Thank you for participating in our Best Minds in Real Estate podcast series. We wish you the best and wish Pyramid the best as we move forward in this fascinating environment. So Warren, thank you very much.
1: Taylor, thanks. Appreciate it. Be talking with you.
0: Take care. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of conversations with the best minds in real estate. If you are interested in learning more about RCL Co, go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at rclco. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.